Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, I'm bringing a good friend and a past guest back onto the show today. It's uh, Chad Carson, or he's also known as Coach Carson. Great guy. He reached out to me just not long ago and he said, hey, I have a book coming out and I want you to take a look at it. So I did. I took a look at it and uh, I thought it was great. It's just another perspective and approach and view on real estate investing. And so for those of you who are not familiar with Chad or haven't heard the past episode in the past, Chad, or many people know him as Coach Carson, is an author. He's an investor, obviously a podcaster, a lifelong learner, and he used real estate investing to achieve financial independence in his 30s. So he's done what a lot of us always aspire to do or think about doing. But he's publishing a new book soon called The Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor. How's that for a title? He sees the book essentially as a manifesto and guidebook for small rental property investors. And these are people who simply want to create financial independence and time freedom, not the, you know, the 10Xers, the go big or watch me until I scale to the moon type of people out there. This is kind of like in the way I look at it, it's kind of like the building blocks or building bricks to build up a passive income portfolio without having to have uh, goals that essentially are reaching for the stars. Why not hit the moon? So with that, Chad, hey, welcome to the show. Great to be back, Marco. Thanks for having me and appreciate that intro. Yeah, no, it's great to have you back. Now, for everybody to know, you're actually in a di much different time zone because you're still in Spain. You're on a, a long vacation with your family. Is that true? <laughs> yes. So we, I'm in Granada, Spain. So if anybody's been to southern Spain, it's the kind of older, hotter part of Spain. It's about 104 degrees out, outside <laughs> today. I was just telling Marco that before we got on the call today. Uh, but we've been on an adventure. I have a 12-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old daughter, my wife, and we moved to Spain for a year. And at least for us, kind of part of our bigger picture story is we like to have the time freedom to travel and not only take vacations, but also live different places. My wife teaches Spanish. We wanted our kids to become fluent in Spanish. So we uh, decided to enroll them in schools here in Spain. And I took Spanish classes every week. I still kind of do my thing, podcasting here and there, writing a book. But this has been a year for me just to get away from the normal routine. My wife has been teaching English. She's also uh, taking classes here locally. So yeah, that's that's been our, our experience for the last 12 months. And you know, real estate's always at the foundation of that, though. That's what's enabled this because I've been doing it now two decades, 20, 21 years, and build, building up to this point where you have enough income and also enough free time to be able to make this kind of stuff happen has been, it's been my goal and what I like to share about. Well, that's huge. You basically are spending a year in Spain using the rental income from your portfolio and not necessarily working a W-2 or active job in order to support yourself. You're basically doing it off passive income, right? Correct. That's it. Yeah. I mean, 100% of, of what we spend in over here in Spain, and we're not skipping either. We spend about eight to 10 grand a month, somewhere in there, is uh, is rental income. So yeah, that's I, I do have other businesses and I teach a few classes here and there, but I've taken a sabbatical, sabbatical from that this year as well. So it's kind of something my, my main gig is, is the rental income and, and having real estate yeah. properties. Yeah, that's incredible. Just real briefly, how did you get started in real estate investing for those people who are wondering, well, you know, how's Chad living in Spain for 12 months on rental income? How'd you get started? Yeah, the, the quick version of that is I, I jumped into this right out of college. And I was just a I, I didn't have a lot of debts. I didn't have a lot of expenses. That was the good part. But I also didn't have a lot of money. Um, but I just I thought it'd be cool to get into the flipping side of the business. So I got into finding good deals for other people because I didn't have enough money to buy them myself. 
And as I got good at finding deals, I learned to partner with other people who had the money, either through real joint venture partnerships or uh, progressively, I started borrowing private money, seller financing. So I got creative with the financing. And I have a, a business partner and I have been investing for 21 years together now. And so we eventually got out of the flipping and got more into the rental properties, which is what we do today. And we just we built a buy, a buy and hold portfolio in Clemson, South Carolina. It's a small college town in the northwestern corner of South Carolina between Charlotte and Atlanta. And we rent primarily small multifamily properties to students or grad students. We also have some single family houses, some mobile homes, things like that, kind of outside of Clemson as well. But yeah, it's just a one location in a small town. And that's how we've, we've built it up. Yeah, that's great. So right before we got started recording here, we were just talking about, you know, mini vacations and travel and whatnot. You know, you refer to them as mini retirements, but you kind of made a point that too much delayed gratification is dumb. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the maxims of investing, which I do subscribe to, is that you can't have it all. You know, you have to, a friend of mine, Paula Pant, who has the, the Afford Anything podcast, always says, you, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. Like you have to make some kind of calls, right? So you have to decide to save money and invest here. And I think most of us get that if we get into investing, there's some delayed gratification that goes into that. But I think what I'm mm -hmm. speaking to there is if you're ambitious enough to save money, invest in real estate, buy properties, you have another problem that's kind of the opposite problem, which is you're probably good at deferring and deferring and deferring and never really cashing in on the enjoyment of why you built this in the first place. And I'm speaking, you know, anytime I say you, I'm speaking to myself as well, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the number one, I, I could keep climbing and going and going and going. And my wife has been a really good partner in that respect of just us figuring out like, what do we want our life to look like? And why not do it now instead of waiting till 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And there's sort of an art and a science to doing that. Like when we first started, uh, before we even had kids in 2009, it was the middle of the Great Recession. We were not financially independent. We had a you know thousand or two thousand bucks a month coming in from our rental properties, but it was kind of inconsistent, and you know we were just not confident that we could live off of it. But we saved up some money and we built up our systems in our rental property business to the point where we could travel, we could take our backpacks, we could go, and it's sort of like a forcing function. Like if, by you leaving and deciding to leave, even if you're not ready yet. Even if it's for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, maybe a year, someday, if you ever want to do that, it forces you to build your systems and your business in a way that allows that to happen. And that's the real key is that if you only, you know, work, 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 and never force yourself to take a little bit of time off, you'll never test out whether this thing will work or not. Like, can you really live off your passive income? Can you really build systems that run without you? Well, you'll never know until you test it out. And so that's, I think part of it is yes, enjoying that it's like climbing a mountain you want to enjoy the journey you want to take some plateaus along the way and camp out enjoy the enjoy the flowers enjoy the scenery right that's part of it and then the other part of it is it's a it's a business strategy it's a business strategy to, to if, if that's the business you want over the long run to have rental properties that take a little bit of your time and produce all your income if it's forced me over the years to to build systems to hire people and to build build my business in a way that i have to be able to step outside from it yeah. Well, that's a smart way to even build a business. So that's the right way to do it. So you have this book coming out called The Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor. Interesting title. How are you defining a small investor? Yeah, I'll give you a, an actual definition. Then I'll give you some, a couple of examples on the bigger end okay. and the small, smaller end. The, the way I define it in the book is that a small and mighty investor has a goal of, a, of the, the least number of properties, of owning the least number of properties possible 
that still accomplishes your, your financial goals. So I'll, I'll paraphrase that. All of us want to accomplish our financial goals. We want to have a certain amount of income, a certain amount of wealth. That's, that's a given, right? But there's a, there's multiple paths to get there. And whether it's explicit and said or not, a lot of the, you know, the rah-rah real estate stuff out there that I've been listening to for, for since I was a beginner often assumes that bigger is better and that the more you do, the faster you do, the better it is. And I, I just wanted to push back on that because my own experience has been that, that if you can choose an alternative path where you have the simplest solution to a problem, the most elegant solution to a problem, it's easier to actually step out of your business to do that thing I was talking about earlier, because the bigger it is and the more moving parts you have, the more properties you have, the more things can break, the more tenants you have to manage. And yes, there are people out there who systematize and you know create a business of thousands and thousands of units that's supposedly passive, but that's a hard road for most of us to do. I'll speak for mm -hmm. myself. Having five properties, 10 properties, 20 properties, and especially if you have a property manager doing for that for you, which I know a lot of your listeners subscribe to what you teach of having long distance and hiring a team. Uh, if you do that, I mean, it's not unreasonable to have two hours per week, an hour per week, three hours per week that you spend on your rental properties, which is kind of where my where I've landed now. And so that that's kind of the story of the small mighty investor. But what does that look like in practical, you know, in the practical execution of that? On the small end, I know I featured some people in the book who had 10 properties and they paid them off. They had some properties in South Carolina. I featured other people who had 15 or 20 properties. I've had a couple people I featured had one or two. Their goal wasn't to replace all of their income. They just wanted to pay for a couple of things with a couple of properties. And that's fine too. But then you can all, I mean, depending what your goals are, like I have a business partner, 50-50 business partner. So you kind of divide everything we have into two. We have 33 properties. And some of those are multi-unit properties, some are single family, but it's about a hundred units total. So I, I would consider myself on the larger side of a small and mighty investor, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely had a fork in the road in our business. We were full-time investors for the last 21 years where we could have reinvested a lot of our profits into growing and growing and growing. And I could have syndicated, I could have done a lot of other stuff, but the choice we made was to reinvest a lot of those profits. Once we got to this point where we had built enough wealth to reinvest our cash flow, our profits into the properties we already had and to actually pay off debt and <laughs> to do some things like, you know, going the opposite direction from what I did before, leverage, 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 debt, 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 actually started paying off some of the debt, which kept our portfolio at the same, relatively the same size for the last five, six years, but our wealth has increased, our, incre our cash flow has increased, our risk has decreased, and I've just had a lot more peace of mind and simplicity mm -hmm. because, because of that fork in the road that we took. You're making me think of all kinds of interesting things. One thing that came to mind as you were talking is, and maybe this is a math question, but at what point do you decide that your portfolio size is big enough and you switch gears and you start uh, applying that income from the properties towards paying down the mortgages, maybe you know one at a time, just in sequential order? Is there a subjective answer or is it more mathematical where it's, a, it's more of an objective answer? Yeah, what I tell people in the book is it's nice to have a specific goal when you're when you're planning your real estate investing. And this is kind of like the Eisenhower quote, I think, who said, you know, plans are worthless because you're never going to get exactly like you planned. But the planning mm -hmm. process is super valuable. And so what I try to 
encourage people to do is to work it backwards. Like if you're a brand new investor or early in your wealth building journey, shoot for a number of properties and you can do it pretty simply. I can explain just the basic process is that let's say you had a, a house that rents for $1,800 per month. That's kind of the median price rental in my market in Clemson, South Carolina. And let's just assume that the expenses, operating expenses, so every expense except for your mortgage payment is about 800 bucks. So $1,800 per month minus 800 bucks is $1,000. Nice round number. And if you just said, all right, my number, let's say your number is 10,000 a month, which is my number for kind of like a nice, uh, cushy financial independence uh, living for me and my family, then having 10 properties like that paid off free and clear would produce enough income to pay for your lifestyle. So that's, that's kind of, that's the starting point. You see, so, all right, in my area, 10 houses would, would do. But then you start asking, this is where you get into the tactical side of things. And I talk about in the book, there's several different ways to get to that end result of 10 properties. And so one way, I've done several of these myself. One way is to overbuy, to buy more properties than you actually need in the end. So you know, the rough math might've been like, if you need 10, maybe you buy 15, maybe you buy 20 of them. And the, the interesting thing about that is as you buy 20, you're going to learn what the best 10 properties you have are the ones that attract the best tenants, the ones that the low, lowest maintenance, the ones that stay full the longest and your tenants stay a long time. And then you're going to find some that are on the opposite end. These are going to be the ones that, oh man, there's always a maintenance issue. It always turns over for whatever reason. That's not my ideal property. And I actually made a list of all those over the years, my business partner and I did. And those are the ones we sold first. And sometimes we did a 1031 exchange and bought another property, but in this mm -hmm. kind of, I call it an ender phase or a harvester phase where we're definitely trying to pay off debt and we're trying to uh, rearrange our portfolio more for safety and income and, and living off of it. We would sell properties and just pay taxes on them. And you can be a little strategic with that. If you're, if you're a W2 earner and you're earning a lot of money, you're going to, you're going to pay a higher tax rate, but the capital gains rates, what, 20, 22% at this point, somewhere in there. So you're going to pay taxes. You're going to use the leftover profits to pay off debt on the rest of your properties that you own. So overbuy, sell some strategically, use the profits to pay off some debt. And then the other you can do, you can use the personal finance tool like uh, the, the, the rental debt snowball. You could just right. take all the income. So especially if you're a W-2 earner, you're, you don't live off your rental income. Don't touch it. Leave it all in the business and you can recycle that money to start paying off one debt at a time instead of getting right. 10, 10, 15 year loans or 20, 15 year loans, get interest only or 30 year loans if you can, and then use all of the cash flow, apply it to one property at a time. And then if that gets paid off in two or three years because you're concentrating your cash flow, now you freed up a thousand dollars a month on that one. And then you kind of pile your snowball up and go for the second property and the third property. Mm -hmm. And how far you want to go is really up to you and it's up to the math you want to look at. We actually didn't pay off 100% of our properties, but we went from when we first started investing, we averaged about 70% loan to value on our whole portfolio, you know, because we buy properties a lower, we put a little bit of a down payment to the end where we're now about 15%. It kind of fluctuates a little bit, um, but we're, you know, we're definitely below 20% loan to value, whereas some properties are free and clear, some properties are worth you know, 300,000 and we owe 50,000 or hundred thousand bucks on it. It just depends on the property. But the point is for me, I had an objective of reducing risk and increasing income, which is a kind of an undersold benefit of paying off debt. Because if you have a debt that's been, you've been paying off for 10 years, for example, I had one example I'm thinking of, it was a thousand dollar payment, a hundred thousand dollar loan on a property that's now probably worth two or 300,000. And by paying that hundred thousand dollar debt off, I now free up $1,000 per month or $12,000 per year, 
And if you look at it kind of a rough cash on cash return, that's about a 12% cash on cash return in terms of mm -hmm. 100,000 100, invested, 12,000 back. And when your objective is to live off your income and also to reduce uh, your risk so that in case something happens, in case, you know, some, who knows what's going to happen. That's anything I, I can't predict exactly what's next, but right. by, ha by having that, at least some of your properties paid off, you, you're building what I call in the book, an income floor where it's, it's kind of like annuities or bonds or something else in the other parts of the investment world where you're, you're just saying this part of my portfolio is my foundation, my fallback plan. I don't want to slide back down that mountain. And it's just a, it's a, it's a good way to, to put a plan together, execute it by saying, I'm going to pay this property off, this property off. It gives you some objectives to, to shoot for, which is very helpful in your long-term goal setting. So since we're on the topic of debt, there's a lot of uh, things we could talk about there. You know, you bought that $100,000 property of uh, now it's worth 300,000. You have an extra 200,000 in equity. So let's just say you paid it off. To me, looking at that, it would be tempting to tap into that equity, not all of it, but even a third of it, and use that equity to acquire more rental properties that generate positive cash flow. I mean, the aggregate total would be more so than just keeping that one property paid off free and clear, typically. So why wouldn't you, I'm just curious what your, what your thought process was. Why didn't you tap into that, that additional equity when you had essentially a 200% gain on the, on the value of that property? Yeah. So th there's two different mindsets and I, I get this. And this is probably what a lot of people, if you're a good investor, you're probably like pushing back on me now and say, wait, 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 like this is not the optimal way to grow your portfolio. And I, right. I agree. I agree with you. Like, I, I think that the shift is, and I, I think about this in stages, like I, I, you could basically roughly say like, as an investor, you start off as a, a beginner starter, the first two or three properties you buy, you're kind of just learning. And then you go into a phase, the second phase, which is like a wealth builder where your objective is just to maximize right your ROI, like get, grow as quickly as you can, as safely as you can. You don't want to go crazy, but your goal is to go, go bigger. And that's fine. Like, that's great. That's where leverage makes sense. That's where re return on equity is one of the most important metrics you can look at. That's where you want to refinance, pull it out, reinvest it. So those are all great tools. What I'm, who I'm speaking to is when you made that decision to, to metaphorically take some chips off the table, you're, you're making a sacrifice of your return on investment in exchange for reducing risk, increasing income. And you could still have a line of credit or something on that property if you really had an amazing opportunity so that you're not having debt equity. But I, I, I consciously made the choice knowing that, saying this is a great property. I want to reduce my risk on this property. I'm going to free up the cash flow. So if I want to borrow money on another property, for example, that's a little more aggressive, I've got an extra thousand bucks per month here that I can use to supplement that debt over there. But I'm, mm -hmm. I'm almost like you're building a castle wall around those properties and saying like, yes, this is, I'm having to shift my mindset about what a successful investment looks like, but this is not, a, this is not um, unusual in a lot of ways. Like if you look at mature S&P 500 companies, if you look at Warren Buffett, you, you look at all of them as they mature, their loan to value on their whole portfolio goes down to the point where some of the most long, you know, the companies with the most longevity, the most mature companies have either zero debt or like 15% or 20% of what their assets are. So you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act, right? And if you feel like, hey, I'm, I still have more room to grow, then by all means, don't start paying off the debt. But I have found at some point, if you, you're probably going to know it. I had a, stu a student of mine who asked, he, he emailed me and said, you know, we have 20 properties. You know, I want to leave my job at some point here pretty soon. Like I keep thinking to myself, why am I buying more properties? And I, 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 my feedback to him was like, you're transitioning into this next phase. You should consider 
you know, selling some properties or paying off debt, just see how it feels, do one or two, see if it's right for you. And it's, it's kind of a gut check feeling. It's more, it's definitely, there's some objective measurements you can make, but it's also, is this enough? Like, am I ready to transition to a new part of my life? Do I want to take a break for a while? Those are the kind of questions I think lead to this, this type of uh, strategy making. So it's subjective as far as when and how to pay off the rental property debt. That's, that's just a matter of preference. Do you want to be, I mean, you refer to it as the phases of, of the rental investor journey. You've got your starter phase, you have your wealth builder phase, and then it's something you call the ender phase, which maybe you should expand upon. But if you're shifting from that wealth building phase to the ender phase, I'm going to assume that's when you make a decision uh, about paying off debt mm -hmm. and either go debt free or maybe just in a low debt environment. Yeah, exactly. And the, the ender is a term I borrowed from a, a teacher down in Florida named Pete Fortunato. And I, I love the term, mm -hmm. but I'll also kind of torn about it. It's like, I, I like to use the term harvester as well, because it sort of implies that you're done growing, you're done with it. You're, like, you're not done. Like it's, it, you're ending the phase of maximizing and prioritizing growth. You're still going to grow. Like I, I give the example, if you have a free and clear property and let's just use rough numbers. Like if let's say the income portion is about a 7% return of what your total equity is, you know, if the property appreciates at 3%, to 5%, you, know, you, you could make a 10 to 12% return on a free and clear property. And so you, it's not, it's not that your growth is done. It's just, again, a shifting, a shifting of priorities. And it's, it's going to be partly what your lifestyle is, but it could, you could also set a number, like you could set a net worth number. You can set a amount of income number. For example, mm -hmm. if you, going back to my 10 property example, if you knew $10,000 per month was your number and you got up to 15 properties that all had about those, that profile, $1,800 a month in rent, you know, a thousand bucks is the net operating income after all your operating expenses. That means you're, you're, you have more than you need if they were free and clear. And so at that point, you might say, all right, I've kind of, from my wealth building standpoint, I'm pretty close. Maybe I should start experimenting with some, some different tools in the toolbox, some different strategies. And again, it's not a permanent thing. Like you can, uh, my business partner and I did this in stages. We, in 2009, when I told you we went on that four month trip, we were in the kind of baby ender phase. Like we just, we just had to do it to survive. And during the great recession, we had to refinance some properties. We had to pay off some second mortgages. We had just had to clean up our portfolio a little bit. And then if you fast forward to 2016 and 17, we had another period where we had a lot of cash sitting aside and we're like, all right, we could just go pay off all of our properties right now, or we could reinvest this, but do it more conservatively. And we actually chose to reinvest it. We bought a 28 unit apartment complex, but we did it with a huge down payment. We did it, you know, with a you know, 50% debt instead of 80% debt. And, and that deal kind of pushed us from like a normal financial independence level to like, Hey, this is, you're, you're in a much more uh, stable position, luxurious financial independence. So it's really like, you can measure it by net worth and cash flow, but you also have to get a feel, I think, for where you are in life. Are you ready to do this? Or you still want to work for another 10 years? Yeah. So you, you may have partly answered, you know, this question about focusing on building a small portfolio. Again, that's a subjective term, but whatever small is, if you build a small portfolio, what is the strategy in turning that into, you know, what you might refer to as a lean and regular cash flow producing fat financial independence generating portfolio? Is it obvious or is there a strategy around that? Yeah, I mean, part of it's this conversation we just had about debt. I think, you know, over time, it's like you pay that $100,000 debt off, you have $1,000 per month you freed up. So if you're just right. working it backwards saying, 
All right, and I'm gonna define those terms for everybody who hasn't heard of that. It, you can make a goal for yourself for financial independence and roughly break it into like three different sub goals. Maybe you could say yeah. lean, lean financial independence is, you know, figure out what is your, your basics, like your mortgage payment on your house. If you have a mortgage, your insurance, health insurance, your car insurance, just like look at the things that like, if you just had to spend that, like during COVID, you couldn't leave the house. Like what, what did you spend money on? What did you have to spend money on? That would the be necessities. like a, the necessities. Exactly. So that'd be like a lean financial independence, regular financial independence. If you looked at your budget today, you know, what are you spending roughly right now? Like just on a normal year, not counting luxurious vacations or something, but just normal stuff like eating out, paying for normal things, you know, don't, you know, just figure out what that is. And I'll just give you real numbers just to, in the book, I shared examples, like maybe, uh, you know, middle in the middle of the country, not the East coast, West coast, but maybe it's 3000 a month might be lean fi, maybe 5,000 per month is a, a regular fi, maybe 10,000 a month is a fat financial independence where you're building a little bit more cushion. Now, maybe you double that in the big cities, somewhere else. I, I don't know. You, you can pick your number. Like that, that's where it's personal. That's personal finance. But the, the math mm -hmm. is the same. Whatever you're trying to accomplish, real estate's beautiful because it's really simple math. It's just addition and subtraction, maybe a little bit of algebra here and there. But you, you, you figure out what does that property produce that I'm my ideal property in my location. And you figure out what's the net operating income on that property. That's the rent minus my operating expenses, everything except for my mortgage payment. And then you just stack those up. You just say how many, if my fat financial independence number is $10,000, then having plan A might be having 10 free and clear properties or plan B might be, all right, I'm not going to pay off all 10 of them. Maybe I'll have five of them free and clear and I'll have another 10 of them financed. And you could, you could kind of roughly figure out what that math would look like, whether you're going to have some leverage, all free and clear. But the point is you can pretty simply figure out just by doing some rough subtraction of how many properties you need in your end ender portfolio, like that portfolio that you can actually live off of. And the key to that is partly math and partly, like I talked about earlier, getting the right mm -hmm. properties. Because I've had some properties over the years that were super inconsistent. The rent was up and down, the expenses were up and down. And as I've had to live off my in income, I wanted to get rid of those properties because I, I can't depend on that. Like I, what I want is a nice, stable, consistent property where a tenant stays for 10 years where it's a low maintenance. I like, I like brick houses. I like hardwood floors and tile in the kitchen. Um, you know, those little details matter because you could have one property that produces a, a lot of maintenance cost. Another property produces 10% of that. Right. And so I, I think that it's, it's partly the math and it's partly being choosy uh, on which properties you, you keep for that, that long-term portfolio. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense. And actually I like those types of properties too. The low, low maintenance, yep. uh, easy to fill properties in desirable neighborhoods. Those are definitely exactly. my favorite. Me too. You've mentioned mighty and I know in the book you talk about being small and mighty or a small and mighty investor. Can you just briefly explain what you mean by that? Because you wrote a book essentially about being a small and mighty investor. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. So you might, you may go into more detail, detail on the, the mighty side, what that means or is it, dive down yeah. on the mighty side? Because, yeah. you know, a lot of people might be thinking, well, I don't want to be a small investor and you know, maybe they, they're not just yeah. you know, understanding yeah. what small is. Cause you, you know, yeah. you talk about starting off with four properties. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a starting point, focus on yeah. building a, a four property portfolio and then build from there. Yep. And so, yeah, yeah. Part, part of the, I think the, the marketing challenge, what I, I had to do here is, is, is sort of a, it's almost like a oxymoron to say sm, small and mighty, right? Like, yeah, I, typically I go big to be mighty. I got a 10 X I got it. And, and also there's a psychological thing. Like for me personally, like I'm aspirational, like any of you who've been saving money and buying properties that you're, you're probably a go-getter. You're probably somebody who likes to accomplish things. 
But what, what I would like you to like consider here is that you can accomplish everything you want in your life by having something, a simpler solution. So everything you want, like, let, let's just think about what, what does mighty mean to you? Like what is doing everything you want in your life? Does it mean that you would work part-time at a job you like, or does it mean you go to your boss and say, I will work, but I'll work these hours and I'll work this schedule. And these are the things I'll do. These are the things I won't do. Or does it mean I want to stay home with my kids part-time? Or does it mean I want to travel the world? Does it mean I want to go, go in an RV and travel to all the national parks in the country? Like it's probably a combination of personal family type stuff. It's probably combined with some kind of work. Like you probably, especially if you still have some energy left in you, which most of you do, you're probably not going to sit on your, sit on your hands and do nothing. So it's, it's a combination of saying, what would I like to do professionally that would be better than what I'm doing right now? Like what would be more enjoyable, a better schedule, a better way of doing this? And then what from a personal standpoint or some of the, the you could call them bucket list items or you could call them like, what am I not doing enough of right now that I'm just eating at me at night when I'm thinking about it, that I should be doing that more. I should be spending more time at my kids' practices when they're playing sports, or maybe I should be spending more time contributing to this cause in my community. And so that to me, I have another mantra, like do what matters. Being mighty to me is defining your own success, not defining like Instagram success that has 150 properties and that's the most successful person. Like we really have no idea who the most successful people are because each of us defines success for ourselves. And it's an internal thing. It's a relationship thing. It's how we spend our time behind closed doors type thing. That's really hard to capture with a social media post. But what I would put forward to you is that's the most essential thing like that. It, the good life, if you were to be on your deathbed at the end of your life, like which things would you regret doing? Would it be buying that extra five properties? Would it be taking a trip with your family? Would it be working a, a little bit better schedule so you have more free, free time for your health and for your family? Like those are only questions that all of us personally can answer. All, But what I'm trying to say is the solution to that, at least in my opinion, it's not the only solution. There's lots of solutions out there. The, a, a reasonable solution that's worked for a lot of people, and then I think for most people who aren't going to try to be full-time in real estate, is to have a, have a smaller portfolio than maybe what they, they considered before. And it, it can still accomplish all of those things you want in life. There's no compromise. You don't have to, like, I feel like I have not compromised. I'm pinching myself all the time. Like, this is amazing. Like, the life I'm living, the things I'm having to do, I haven't had to, from a money standpoint, from a time standpoint, any of the things I've wanted to do in my life has been more enabled because I've chosen to keep it simpler than the, than the other way around. There's been nothing mm. I've, ha I've had to sacrifice. So I don't know, like that's, that's my perspective. And yet I see, I have friends I have, and myself earlier in my career who went big and went fast and there were things that were sacrificed. And yes, there's a, sometimes an end of the goal where you can sell out and you know, all that, pay, that hard work pays off, but you know, what's the collateral damage like on, in the meantime, like what kinds of things happen when you go big and go fast and it doesn't end up like you thought it was in the end and you miss out on some of those things in the, in the meantime. So I, I think that's, that's my, you know, that's my uh, messaging. Everybody's got to choose what's, what, what that means for them. But I, I do, I'm a big believer that the simpler you can keep it, the slower you can keep it, the smaller you can, can still accomplish everything you want. There was a lot of golden nuggets and wise wisdom in what you just said in the last uh, two, three, four minutes, Chad. I mean, I'm just reflecting on my life as you were talking about the things that I could potentially regret, you know, um, down the road on my deathbed and, you know, what I'm not doing today that I wish I were doing or what I could have been doing. So, 
yeah, I, I, you you made me reflect actually quite a bit in listening to what you know everything you had to say, which actually kind of ties into you know what you have in the book is the seven rules of a small and mighty real estate investor, and you know you reminded me of rule one and and rule two, the the first one being you know put life first and business second, and sadly I do the opposite often, you know, and it's, I know I'm aware I'm doing it, but it's, it's good to hear it, and you really need that refresher, and you know that's why you're the coach. And I, I do it as well. So I want to I want to repeat this. Like when you when you make big messages like this, you, you have to be like humble about it. And I, I, I'm with you, Marco. Like I, I feel like I need to write it in a book to remind myself. And we're, we're all yeah. working. We're all a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. I like working like I think it's fun. It, yeah, the, me too. The, 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 the challenge is for us, those of us who do like working and who have a capacity, like we're, we're good at what we do. We have an entrepreneurial ability is to find a space that makes sense for our lives. And there's seasons in our lives, right? For me. Be early in my career, I had to spend the 60 to 80 hour weeks. Do I want to do that right now with, you know, kids who are in a kind of season of their life? Not, not right now. So it's, it's like, there's always a, right. you know, a season for everything, but I, at least I think somebody needs to say it and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say it. And it's not as, it's not as uh, sexy to say that, but it's in the end, I think it really is the thing we regret is, are those moments or those things that we didn't do that we could have in the, in the name of making more and doing more and moving the goalpost. Yeah. Your second rule is, uh, you know, be the real estate tortoise, which is what you were just talking about, you know, not the hare. You want to expand on that for half a minute? Yeah, I'll borrow my one of my mentors, John Schaub, who wrote Building Wealth One House at a Time. He, I think he yep. says it best. He always says, buy a property, take a deep breath, just buy one property per year is what he recommends. But the way I, I think about it is like, buy a property, take a deep breath, learn from what you just did. Instead of doing what I did in 2007, let's buy 20 properties at one time. And then... I'm going to make 20 mistakes and then I won't learn about those mistakes until after I buy 20 properties. A better approach, especially early in your career when you're learning so much is to buy one at a time, give yourself a couple months, absorb those lessons, learn from them, do something else for a little bit. And that's, that's the tortoise approach. The tortoise can go pretty fast in the end, right? It kind of compounds. It's like that growth curve that it can really accelerate. And the, the tortoise is still winning the race in the, in the investing world. I, I believe that. And so you have to kind of ignore a lot of the fast, talking news and all that and just plot along, do your thing, have your strategy. It, it, it works in the long run. Is that why you suggest starting with just four properties as opposed to, you know, trying to hit a home run? Exactly. I think buying, but that's my next rule is that if you buy four properties, it's a good goal for beginners. When you're first starting, it's so overwhelming that even to think about the stuff I talked about earlier, 10 properties, 20 properties. Oh my gosh, that's, I don't even have to get my head around that. But if you have one property right now or two properties or zero, you can get to four. You could probably do that in the next two to three, four years. You could do that. And you're going to learn a lot and kind of look at your career as before I got four properties and after I got four properties, not because that's a magic number, although there are some financing, you know, uh, thresholds you get over once you get above four properties, it's a little bit more difficult to get conventional financing, but it's just, a, it's a good place to take a pause as you're climbing up the mountain. Think about, do I still want to do this? Is real estate good for me? Is it not? You, you can still get out if you, if you don't like it at that point. Yeah, for sure. So Robert Kiyosaki talks about real estate investing as being a team sport, and we all recognize that and we know the importance of it. We need our attorneys, we need our CPAs and bookkeepers and property managers and all those people. You broke it down in a very interesting way. You, you actually define three groups. You've got inner circle team members, you've got your support circle team members, and then the service circle team members. I like the way you broke this down a lot. Can you define what those three circles are? 
Sure. And I borrowed this idea, by the way, from the, the millionaire real estate investor, Jay Pepazon and Gary Keller, one yep. of my favorite yep. real estate books, but um, yep. just borrowed, borrowed the idea. And but the idea is that you think about it in circles, like your inner circle is your most trusted team members. These are, if you have a spouse or partner, they, they need to be on board, right? I get that. I don't know if you get this, this question a lot, Marco, about how do I get my spouse on board? And I'm like, Hey man, that's like, that's outside my expertise here. <laughs> ha, ha, have a conversation, have a, but, but what I can say is that if you're, if you have a partner or a significant other and they're not, you're not on the same page, it's going to be really difficult. They're, that's part of your inner circle just by default. And so having those tough conversations, maybe proving, maybe they have some reason to have some doubt in you from past experience. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, I don't know. But um, your, your partner or spouse is definitely on the inner circle. Mentors, if you have them, if you have a, sometimes it's a family member, but often it's not a family member. Sometimes it's, you know, your family might be concerned about you and, but not always give you the best real estate advice. Sometimes they, they're trying to care for you, but don't want you to take the risk. And so having a mentor or a mind, mastermind group of people who can be your, either your peers or maybe somebody a little bit ahead of you who can give you some perspective, who has your mm -hmm. best interest at heart. And is, is it somebody who's getting a fee from you for like buying right. a property? Like if, if you ask your barber, whether you need a haircut, what are they going to tell you? <laughs> they're going you know, to they're, they're tell you, you need a haircut. Um, and that's what they do, right? If you ask your real estate agent, your property manager, they, they, they're on your side, but they're always going to have a little bit of a bias. So I, I like having that inner circle of people who you trust, who you can pick and choose. That's number one. And then as you move out of that circle, you have these long, long range members of your team. So for me, this is a property manager. This is a, probably a real estate agent to help you acquire properties. Maybe they're the same person in some cases. Um, but property manager for me is like the number one team member on my, my long-term rental property team because they often find contractors for me. They often find other team members. They know closing attorneys. They know all the other people you need to get. And so starting with like two or three Definitely a property manager, definitely a real estate attorney in the state you're investing in. I think that's a really important one um, just because this is a this is a property sticks and bricks game, but this is also a legal game. And you might not use your attorney all the time, but you need to use them early on, help you with your LLC or whatever entity you're setting up, help you with contracts, help you understand what you're doing. Um, it's just it's a no brainer because you can get an attorney, you can get their rate, you can talk to them by the hour. Yes, it might seem expensive at first, but that's a good investment in your your long run. So having your property manager, maybe a real estate agent, attorney, CPA, those kinds of people who are going to be on your team long run often have a fiduciary duty to you. Those are your uh, your next circle out. And then you have your service circle is the, the or your, your subcontractors. This might be your title company or closing attorney, might be your plumber, might be your electrician. And sometimes these people come and go, but I've had plumbers I've used for 20 years, handyman I've used for many, many years. So you can have some long-term relationships there as well. But I would say if, you, if you're building your team, you can't build all that at one time. Start from the inside right. and work, work out. Yeah, well said. Let's transition. So, you know, everybody's got different buy box. You know, I like to use that term, a buy box. I've been using that for many years and I know you talk about it too. Do you have some general advice or recommendations or maybe just direction for investors, whether they're just starting out or not, in terms of location for property? Now, I'm not saying suggest specific markets. I'm just saying, you know, defining the location where they should be investing, the property type, and then the numbers, however you want to define that, because that, yeah. that makes up your buy box. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I, I kind of think about it in two categories. And one category which we'll get into a little bit are, are the numbers. This is a math game. It's got a, you got yeah. your analysis has to work, whether it's cash flow or cash on cash return or uh, unleveraged yield. 
Like that, that's part of the equation. So there's the math part of it. But the other part, which I think you do an amazing job of, and I send people your way to, for the, the data and the analytics is, is your location. And I call it like a qualitative criteria, like the, the location and the property are sort of separate from the numbers, but they're interrelated. And I, I made the mistake early in my career of focusing so much on the numbers and saying, oh, it's a great cash on cash return, therefore I should buy it. And I often bought in the, the worst locations or, the, or at least kind of down the ladder of locations. And so it's a, it's a balancing act there of setting a criteria on your numbers, but then looking at it with a fine tooth comb or getting help from people like you to figure out on the big picture, which markets have the best demographics where there's population increasing and there's a limited supply in a, in a certain location. And then taking that from the big picture down to the micro level. So if you've chosen a region that you really like, so, I mean, let's just say you chose Metro Atlanta, Georgia, for example, then zooming in. And I, I like a, a concept I'm thinking, I don't know if I borrowed this term from somebody else, but I think about it like satellite cities of big cities. Like I grew mm -hmm. up in a town called Noonan, Georgia, which is about 30 miles southwest of Atlanta. And if you think about it, Atlanta is like the sun. That's where the big job centers are. There's everything's revolving around that. I like the Noonans of the world and the Fayettevilles and the you know Decaturs and di different places that are they're, yep. they have their they have their own center of gravity. Like they have their own town center. They have walkability. I'm a big fan of, of of finding places that are suburban, but they feel like a little urban environment because those are the you know the people are moving out of the big cities. All the millennials and people after them. They like the big cities. They like the the feel of being in New York or something, but they like the prices of Newton, Georgia. And so <laughs> that that's that's what you're going for. You're, at least that's my strategy is and we're in a college town. So the college town has kind of a quality of life component, even for non-students. People would like to live there. And but if you could, but you got to have jobs like that's the, the thing that is so important. And so if you go to the major cities and there's always going to be jobs there. Like there's such a huge network effect of jobs and, and things happening in the big, big cities. And if they, if, if it starts changing, you're going to be able to see it. Like people saw it in Detroit 20, 30 years before it really happened. I mean, it started going, it wasn't just overnight kind of thing. And now it's coming back. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, but if you go to an Atlanta, find a little satellite city where the prices are reasonable and kind of fit your numbers, whether that's a you know, looking at the, you know, around the 1% rule, I know that's kind of a little bit more difficult to, to, to make work, some kind of metric that says this is a reasonable investment. And, but you're starting with the analysis of the market, of the demographics of, and I, and on the, the local level, I even get down the street to street level using a, a term called romance. Um, like if, if it has, if you're on a street that has big oak trees and sidewalks and a park nearby, mm -hmm. there's just a feeling about that. There's, there's people who live there because of that, because of that emotional attraction, because real estate's emotional. Yes, it's got numbers, but yeah. pe people live in those houses for emotional reasons. And so you need to tie your investment strategy to those emotional triggers of what's causing those. And if you do, you'll get properties that people stay in and fight over. Like I have one property in Clemson, every time it comes empty, I have five, six, seven, sometimes 10 applications <laughs> within a week or two. Like that's unbelievable. Like that makes your job so much easier as opposed to some of those bad ones I had before where I'm, you know, out on the street with a sign saying, rent me right, right here. Come on, rent right here. This yeah, is a great property. Right. And is that you want a property that markets itself, a location that markets itself. Yeah. hundred percent. One of the questions I get asked quite often, even my team here is, you know, is now a good time to get started in real estate investing or is now a good time to buy, you know, the, for various reasons, either it, it has to do with the economy or potential recession or mortgage rates changing or, you know, you, you fill in the blank, right? In your opinion, especially as you define a small investor, is now a good time to get started as a small investor? 
I think it's a challenging time, but I still think it's a good time. And I'll give you a sports metaphor. I used to play football at Clemson University. I was a middle linebacker. So I was a lot bigger, a lot stronger, but I was, you know, when, when we had to play football, you played in all conditions. Like sometimes it was raining, sometimes it was sunny, sometimes it was windy. And I had a coach, some, uh, Coach Bowden, Tommy Bowden, who used to say, some, some person complained about, well, what if it's raining, coach? How are we gonna, are we gonna pass the ball when it's raining? And he was like, I'll buy, I'll buy as many new balls as I need to so that we have a dry ball on every single play. I was like, wow, really? Okay. I thought about it. Like a ball might cost $50 or I don't know what amount it costs, but like everybody was complaining about how we, let's change our whole strategy. We can't throw it anymore because it's raining outside. And he's like, I'll just buy a dry ball. And that always stuck with me because it's like, you got to play the game. And so in real estate investing, I just, I'm a big believer in not trying to time the market. That doesn't mean you right. shouldn't pay, pay attention to the market. Yes. Interest rates are high. Like I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not saying like it is harder to make it cash flow, but the question is, What's your equivalent of the, the 50 or 60 dry footballs? Like, what's your strategy to adapt to the market? That's the question. Like, what's your competitive advantage? How can you adapt to what we have today? And typically, it comes down to financing. Like, the, the location stuff, the stuff that you teach about fundamental locations, that, that's not changing. Like, people are still moving to right. towns. People still have to have a rent a house. Like, life happens. They do. Life, life continues to happen. So that, that part of the equation doesn't change. The equation is, how do I make the numbers work? And that's where you have to get, you have to think outside the box. You got to get creative. And I, I, I luckily didn't start off my career having conventional financing. I had to think outside the box from the very beginning because I was a college grad with no job. I didn't have any income coming in. And so I had to get creative from the very beginning, even in good times, to figure out how to finance my deals. And I started using private money, joint venture partnerships, lease options, seller financing, yeah. even some terms like kind of coming back popular again today, like uh, subject to and different things like that. There's a whole toolbox of things. Some they're good. There's some good and some bad to each of those. Right. And you have to learn them. They're like learning how to use a power saw. You don't just go like start using a power saw and never having used it before. That's kind of how I see subject to these days. That's a little pet peeve of mine. Um, that, yeah, let's just go use this thing as a brand new beginner without understanding the full um, you know, spectrum of what how, how this, this power tool works. But regardless, that's the, that's the way you approach, I think, 2023 is to, number one, figure out a way to use financing better or differently. Number two, figure out a way to buy better deals. Like you just mm -hmm. might, you know, it, it, every deal works if you buy it at a low enough price. That doesn't mean you're going to get deals 50 cents on the dollar every day. But I think at least I've, I've been experiencing myself and also talking to students around the country, you, you have a little bit more negotiating room. It's not a... That's not a hundred percent buyer's market, but I, yeah. I would be making, I would be making lower offers. Like I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to make a low offer. This is what I can do. These are how the numbers work. The seller can accept it or not, but that's how, that's how you adapt to a market is you have to change your financing, change your offers, change your approach. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And that's always been true. Well, uh, Chad, let's wrap it up with this uh, kind of last question, if you will. It's it's really based off your seventh and last rule for your 10 rules there, and that is measure success differently. It's it's interesting when I hear comments about that, you know, how do you define success? I mean, obviously it's subjective for individuals, but it can be objective to that individual. So what do you mean by measure success differently? Yeah, I alluded to it a little bit earlier about how success is an inside game. Like every one of us has to define it. And yet we've got to measure it. Like we've got to make progress against it. And so for, for me, uh, this is an idea I got from uh, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss early in my career. Uh, you know, if we just, I think my problem is 
using money as the only metric is it's just lopsided. It just it's, it's typically what we do. It's easy to measure, but it's a little lazy if you really want to define success. At a minimum, start adding some other currencies. You know, so instead of just money, add free time to your equation for what makes you a successful business. So maybe you say, you know what, this year it was a record income year, but I had less free time than I did last year. Was that a success? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you chose to do that deliberately. Maybe you're in the growth phase of your career. Like you, you know this. I don't. You know, no, none of us outside the outside the your room will know this. But if you made a goal that year to say, I want to increase the amount of time I have doing other stuff like hobbies with my family, travel, and yet you didn't do it this year, and yet you made you know half a million dollars more than you made last year, is that successful? Like. I don't know. Like that's, that's, that's the kind of thing I, I, I'd like to play around with. So money, time, mobility, those are three that I learned from the, the four hour work week. Uh, those are three criteria that, that really, that really kind of helped me guide my business so that I define success a little bit differently because I could buy this property. It can make me a lot of money, but is it going to require me to spend an extra five to 10 hours per week for the next three to five years to make it work? Right. Like, no, thank you. Like I've passed on tons and tons of opportunities mm-hmm. that could have made me a lot of money because of having a framework that, that between money, time, mobility, but also other things like personal health, contribution. Like, I, you know, going back to our conversation about work, like work is a wonderful thing. Like I say, is it makes you feel on purpose. It makes you feel like you're contributing. And so I, like I never plan to stop working. But asking yourself the question, is this job feel like stale to me? Does it feel like I'm contributing? Am I using my talents? Or is there maybe a different way I can measure success that I like to work in a, an environment that I'm, I'm feel like I'm connecting with the customers, like the people I'm delivering my service to, I feel like it's a mission. Like I would be, I would pay to do this, like instead of just getting paid to do it. And I know that's a, a pretty high standard, but that's the beauty of financial independence is like once you have incrementally more and more cash flow coming into your life without having to work for it, by having assets, you can start saying no to things. You can start negotiating with your boss and saying, hey, look, like this used to be the way we're doing it. I've now got enough money on the side that I don't have to do it. I'm willing to do it like this, this and this. Otherwise, I'm, I'm out. That's, <laughs> that, that's beautiful. Like that's, that's the place you want to get to. And that's the whole purpose for me of the Small Mighty Real Estate Investor book is that's the goal. That's what success looks like. And I can't tell you what you're going to do when you tell the boss to go do whatever he needs to do. But you know that the person listening to this knows that you know what those dreams are, those aspirations, and and use that as your measurement of success. And then business and money is just a tool. It's just a tool to help yeah. you accomplish whatever it is you want to do. But it takes some self discipline to define that for yourself, and then to stick to it. Yeah, beautiful, well said. So, Chad, hey, final comment or takeaway before we wrap up? Uh, thank you. You ask great questions and really appreciate your listeners sticking with uh, this concept. I hope they, they check out the book. It's going to be available uh, on the Bigger Pockets website. I'm sure you'll have some, some links if people want to check it out, but um, biggerpockets.com forward slash uh, small and mighty, uh, just small and mighty. I was going to say it wrong. Biggerpockets.com forward slash small and mighty. And I uh, hope, you, hope you find it helpful to your, your journey. I wrote this book because I had an itch in my head because I've had these ideas. I, I wrote another book called Retire Early with Real Estate, but it was more of a purely of a strategy book, kind of a financial independence book. Whereas this one, I wanted to get people the tactics. I wanted to show you, here's the strategy, big picture, but the meat, the hamburger of this book, the meat is the tactics. How do you find properties? How do you analyze markets? How do you run the numbers? How do you uh, hire people? How do you build systems? And so that's my goal is that you have this book is something on your shelf to read once or twice, go back to, 
and be sort of a business model for you if you feel like this this type of uh, small mighty model resonates with you. Beautiful. Yeah, and I'm sure the book will be available on Amazon as well as uh, you know all the usual booksellers. It will. Yeah. The first month is on bigger pockets. Does it where they, they sell it on their, their website. The first month, August 22nd, it'll be audible and Amazon Barnes and Noble, but you can get, uh, you can get the, all the audio, the digital and the, the physical book on bigger pockets as well. Cool. Very good. Well, Chad, I know it's uh, late for you there in Spain. So I appreciate you staying up and taking the time to come on and um, it's, it's been a great interview. So thank you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Marco, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Download your free report of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, something that I put out about eight years ago, but it's a free download on our website at noradarealestate.com. And also, if you're interested in real estate or getting started, as we were talking about today with Chad or becoming that small and mighty real estate investor, or maybe you're already a small and mighty real estate investor and you just want to grow and scale to that next level, get your next property or two, well, then get your free strategy session with my team of investment counselors here at Norada Real Estate. We're here to help you and answer your questions and put you in touch with the right people and put you on the right track to get you to that next step. If you have a question about real estate investing, by all means, shoot it over to me. Go to the PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com website. You could also email me at AskMarco at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. And uh, remember to subscribe. Like I said, it takes three seconds. Click the button, be subscribed. That way you get notified of each episode each and every week. Spread the word with your friends and family. Tell them about the episodes and the show. And that is it for today. Thank you for listening. We will see you all on our next episode. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.